0: Good evening. You are on with Vince Davis, attorney at law, and attorney Daniel Knowlton. Tonight's show is Divorce in Family Law Talk radio show. The effects of divorce, especially when the divorce involves children, last fall, far longer than the divorce process itself. The consequences of marital dissolution can affect all members of the family and can last a lifetime. You've got questions? Well, we have the answers. Family law legal experts answer your questions about divorce, kids, property, money, custody, and spousal support. Good evening, Dan. How are you?
1: Very good, Vince. How are you this evening? Nice
0: to be on. I'm, do- I'm doing very well. You know, I heard in the news today that um, Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt are getting divorced. Did you hear that?
1: Uh, Yes, I did. Um, That's got to be one humdinger of a
0: case. Did you hear any about the reasons that um, they are considering getting divorced or that Angelina has filed for divorce?
1: Uh, No, I'm I'm sorry. On that one, I I didn't hear a thing about it. Uh, Did you catch any of the, the news on it?
0: You know, I, I had heard um, there was allegations of um, of uh, of drug use, and um, you know about some other things. Here's a, a an article that I saw on E News, and I'll just read it. It's a short article. Sure. It says uh, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie divorce update. What Caused the Couple's Shocking Split, and it's by Jess Cohen. It says, it's the end of an era. Angelina Jolie took the world by surprise when she filed for divorce from Brad Pitt earlier this week after two years of marriage. The news of the split was so shocking, some of the couple's close friends didn't even know about it. Pitt's friend, George Clooney, only heard about the couple's divorce during an interview with CNN on Tuesday. Quote, I didn't know that, I feel very sorry then. That's a sad story and unfortunate for a family, unquote, he responded, it's an, unfortunate sto- it's an unfortunate story about a family. I feel very sorry to hear that. That's the first I've heard of it. Since the news broke, rumors about the reason behind the breakup are flying. So what really happened between the couple and was there a third party involved in the split? And then it says, watch the E-news video to find out to see the latest on Brangelina updates. So I had heard just from, you know, the news or uh, uh, things on the Internet that there was some some issue. Angelina Jolie apparently is not seeking child support, not seeking spousal support. But... uh, Mm didn't mention anything about the property division, and uh, that's going to be a huge property division. Wouldn't you agree?
1: Oh, it sure would be. And I expect that as far as support goes, it's because they both have uh, such substantial incomes, and uh, they probably don't want to have that air in in public so much. But um, I believe that uh, Angelina Jolie uh, and Brad Pitt have adopted a number of children, haven't they? Uh, if I remember right.
0: Yeah.
1: So they I do have, they have five a, or six a large children.
0: Family.
1: Yeah. Much to their yeah. credit. And uh, so that will certainly be a factor in the case for them.
0: Um, apparently this has caught Hollywood by surprise. And I was wondering, although I haven't seen it yet, I was wondering who was going to be represent, who was representing Angelina. And, of course, uh, who's going to be representing Brad in this Hollywood breakup. Hmm. Anyway, Dan, did you get a a list of our questions from our listeners this week?
1: Uh, Yes, I did. I've I've got it right here.
0: Okay, let's just go into the show. And um, let's start with the first question. Go right ahead.
1: Okay. Last night, I called the police on my husband. We were at home without our children, and he became physically violent with me. This is not the first time he abused me when we were home alone. When the police came, they asked me if I wanted an emergency order. I declined because I was not sure what it is and how it would affect my children. Now I'm wondering if I should have gotten one. Please advise.
0: What do you have to say about that?
1: Well, um, this is a very um, common situation, actually, that comes up a lot in child custody cases. And um, if this uh, lady finds herself in a child custody situation, talking about um, the effect that has on the children, if she's trying to protect the children from her husband, uh, she will probably dearly regret that she didn't call the police. And the reason for that is because, uh, as she indicates in, in her question, they were home alone, and so the the only confirmation they would have about or um, about the husband being violent, uh, other than her word, would be the police report, or the police doing something. And if if she didn't, uh, if she hadn't called the police, for example, or if she didn't proceed with the police getting a, a protective order, she l- later may have difficulty in convincing a, a judge in the family law court of uh, the actual facts of the violent situation, the actual proof that there was violence. Um, And in addition to that, there are some ramifications that uh, calling the police or getting a restraining order will have in all likelihood. Now, first of all, if the police are asking if she wanted an emergency order, they probably are talking about a criminal protective order. So there are several different types of restraining orders. The criminal protective order is one that the police might have issued and uh, would last for a short period of time um, and would protect her in this kind of a situation for a short time. A more common one that we see, or equally common, I guess I should say, is a domestic violence restraining order, a DVTRO, I'll call that, domestic violence temporary restraining order. Now, if she uh, got a a DVTRO uh, issued and that takes going to court and telling the judge uh, in writing what happened and then having the judge issue that uh, order, and the order can only be good for about 20 days. Uh, And then after the, or within the 20 days, I think 25 if if it's necessary, within that time a, a temporary hearing will occur or a pendente lite hearing, they call it. And at that hearing, the question will be whether to extend the effect of the DVTRO for a longer period of time. And a normal DVTRO, in the right case, can go five years and can be renewed after that for another five years or forever, so they are very powerful. And how they affect a divorce case, and we so often see a divorce case following upon a domestic violence situation, naturally, especially when they're children. How it can affect the divorce case is uh, a code section called Family C- uh, Code 3044. And 3044 creates a rebuttable presumption that um, the innocent spouse in a domestic violence situation is the more fit parent for having child custody. Um, so if you had a DVTRO, you already have one leg up on getting child custody. If there was no other evidence, just that alone would trigger that presumption under 3044. Now that is a rebuttable presumption, so if the husband came in and and gave proof that um, he was not the one who was the aggressor, that maybe she was the aggressor, and um, He was innocent of that situation. And if that were believed, that could be rebuttable evidence um, destroying or invalidating that presumption. But that's just one of the impacts that a, a DVTRO has. Another impact it might have is that the husband, in this hypothetical, might be kicked out of the home because of it. He certainly would be if they granted, you know, a hundred yards stay away, and typically they would be asking for a stay away from the home. So, <clears throat> picture that the the wife would here have the first 25 days being alone in the home, and if the the DVTRO was renewed at the pendente lite hearing, the temporary hearing, then she would have control of the home throughout the divorce case, in all likelihood. Um, <clears throat> that has some deep considerations financial considerations as well depending on um whether you know she's renting or whether uh, they own the home uh, if the home were a community property then um she might have th- there might be impacts in what are called epstein credits from the marriage of epstein where somebody gets paid back uh maybe half or all of the payments that they're making on a community debt And the other side of that is that uh, he might have Watts credits, that is the fair market value or the fair rental value of the property during the time that she's in the home alone. Um, I'm inclined to think that if a judge ordered somebody out for DVTRO, they're not so likely to give him Watts credits later. I think that's just one of the emotional issues. Now, the story doesn't end there about the issuance of a DVTRO. Also, let's assume that this is a a marriage where she needs spousal support or where he needs spousal support, perhaps. Um, Domestic violence is a factor under the Family Code of 4320 factors. When the court is setting spousal support amounts, uh, either temporarily or for permanent, so-called permanent support, that is post-judgment support, support after a divorce is done. The court has to consider the 4320 factors um, which are greatly affected by such things as the income of the parties, the health of each party, Um, and one of the big factors is whether domestic violence has occurred between them. That is one factor that goes into the amount that the court sets for support. In addition to that, we actually have case authority um, supporting Uh, uh, or reinforcing a court denying spousal support to a party who is guilty of uh, domestic violence. Now, let's reverse this situation a little bit, and let's assume that the wife didn't have an income, and uh, when husband came home, she beat up on him. Uh, She committed domestic violence. In that situation, she would need spousal support badly, but here she would have disabled herself greatly from receiving it, because of the 4320 factors and also that case authority, um, which basically holds that the courts should not be helping an abusive uh, parent or an abusive spouse um, in uh, this kind of a situation. They're, they're not to be helping the, the batterer financially abuse the other spouse. So they're disinclined in many cases to give any spousal support at all. So you can see how the The list is long, and um, the factors are important when it comes to DVTROs, and that's probably one of the reasons why these are so heavily fought sometimes in the courts. Vince, you must have some thoughts on this.
0: You know, I was thinking about your analysis, a very good and in-depth analysis, but you mentioned something, uh, and I'd like you to um, give us some more information and explanation on Epstein and Watts.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. The the Watts case was uh, from a marriage of Watts. He was a doctor, and when he and his wife split up, uh, he continued to operate his medical practice, his profitable medical practice, for some time after the separation. And so when they finally got to the divorce a few years later, the wife said, well, uh, I want some of that money that the doctor has earned from our community medical practice that we build up over the years. And the court held in that case that she would be entitled to a portion of the earnings that that community business built up uh, and to, that he earned post-separation. So that has been expanded to other connections. And I've seen it, for example, used uh, I think most more commonly in a situation where one spouse is in possession of the house, say, just to make the example simple, let's say the house has no mortgage on it, no mortgage payment, it's clear, and let's say wife is left in the house, and uh, let's assume the parties have an equal income, just so we don't get into spouse support concerns, that they both have an, an equal income. Um, the um, The husband being out of the house then could ask for a payment of the rent that he should have gotten for, for uh, the use of his half of the house, say the house, the fair market rental value of the house is $3,000, the hub- husband could say, I want $1,500 a month because she excluded me from the house. I wasn't able to live there, and she lived there in a jolly fashion, uh, and uh, basically she used my half of the rental value by excluding me. That's the Watts factors. The other side of that is if there is a mortgage, for example, then the Epstein credits might kick in. Now, Epstein is very commonly used, that case from Marriage of Epstein, is very commonly used in the following situation. Let's assume the parties, when they split up, have uh, all $50,000 worth of credit card debt. And let's assume that they're paying $2,000 a month on that credit card debt at the at the date of separation and let's assume that all that credit card debt was built up during the marriage so here at the end of the marriage at the end of the separation when they split up from the marriage <clears throat> to protect their credit one of the spouses or or perhaps both but in this hypothetical one of the spouses is paying that 2000 a month on the community credit cards to protect their credit and um, so if they're paying the $2,000, they want half of that money back from the other spouse at the time of the divorce uh, settlement or the divorce trial. So they'll produce their um, their bills to show that existed at the date of separation. That's factor one. And two, they have to produce the actual um, canceled checks or receipts for the payment each month that they've made. And... and that would establish a prima facie case or a case on the face of it um, to, for the court to order half of that money to be paid back to the paying spouse. That's very common in credit card situations, but it could also be applied and is applied often to um, a house situation you know, where somebody's been paying the mortgage payments. So and they want maybe half of that mortgage payment each month back from the other spouse, but if they were ex- if they're in sole possession of the house during that time, let's say the wife is in possession of the house, just because it's fairly common, <clears throat> the husband might might ask for that um, half of that mortgage back. I'm sorry, the wife would ask for half of that mortgage back, and the husband would say, "Well, uh, how about half of my Watt's credits back?" So these two. Often reciprocally offset each other. Now, did I express that clearly without getting too confused?
0: No, no, and very clear, very clear. I love that explanation.
1: Okay, thank you. It
0: does, it does. So, Dan, I'm going to go to the second question. Sure. Um, I am representing myself proper at this time. I am filing a petition for divorce with a request for order what are some of the key things I want to include in my RFO? So, so down, I jump tell into us this? what per means. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, proper but first tell is,
0: us what proper means.
1: Absolutely. Proper is short for Latin propria persona, meaning in one's own person. And it means that they're acting as their own attorney, as their own attorney, without a, a professional attorney. So that's called a pro Proper. Now, um, okay. to answer to answer the question really depends on uh, what the issues are that the spouse is concerned about, that the pro is concerned about when they're filing uh, for their RFO. And let me define an RFO. That's a request for order, which is a just a fancy name for a motion in a divorce case or a separation case. And um, you have to understand that a a divorce case is a civil lawsuit of a specialized kind, and the lawsuit may go on for at least, it will go on for at least six months in California. It could go on a few years. So during that period of time, somebody might want the court to make an order, and if they're asking for the court to make an order, for example, for spousal support or child support or child custody, <clears throat> then they have to file a motion asking the court for that. And that motion is now called an RFO, it used to be called an OSC an order to show cause. <clears throat> One of the most common um issues in an RFO would be support. So if the if the spouse is seeking support, uh, spousal or child support, and spousal support is what in other states they call alimony, If they are seeking that, then some of the things they'll have to have in their RFO would be, for example, pay stubs. Uh, If they have any pay, the court will require that they have the last two or three pay stubs um, attached to an income and expense declaration, which is another four-page document they'll have to have with their RFO. Now, the income and expense declaration, which I'll call an I&E, that would have the pay stubs and it will also have information about um, the income of the spouse and the expenses of the spouse and also some information about the deductions from the pay and uh, a couple questions about the assets generally of the spouse, um, who's living in the house, um, how much the attorney's fees are if they have an attorney. In this case, it's per, so that doesn't apply. Um, It will ask for timeshare, what percentage of the time are the kids with each spouse. Those kinds of things are in the Um, I&E. So in support, that's the the minimum we'd have to have. And then when the other spouse uh, files a response, they'd have to have an I&E also with their pay stubs and that kind of thing. Now, um, if child custody or child visitation is involved, in addition to or um, even in the exclusion of support, uh, there are some things that we'd want to consider as well. They're not quite as cut and dried. Uh, One thing I always want to see in a custody or visitation uh, declaration, a declaration is what they call an affidavit in other states. It's a sworn statement. So in your sworn statement with regard to child custody for an RFO, I'd want to see the history of what the child sharing has been, um, even going back to who who's, uh, was the primary parent when the children were very young, who used to do the cooking and the bathing and the diaper changing, all those kinds of things, because that's what tends to build up a psychological bond, an attachment of the children to the parent. And uh, of course, it depends on the age of the children about how this declaration is going to be done. but. You'll basically want to set out the role of the parents and what the actual history of the sharing has been. Is Dad uh, out traveling all the time um, and only um, in you know on weekends or once a month or something like that? Then of course, mom has a heavy burden in uh, in caring for the kids, and they are likely to be very reliant upon Mom in that situation. Uh, so you can see how those factors play in. In child custody, you need to set out factors, uh, facts, showing the best interest of the children. That's the primary factor in child custody. So you'd want to have facts in your declaration all about what is best for the kids. Do the kids have um, special needs? Do they have psychological needs? Uh, Do they um, have friends in the neighborhoods? And uh, where are the parents living? And what are what are the closeness of the kids to the uh, various resources that each parent has at their different locations? Where do the kids go to school? Um, are the kids changing schools soon? Those kinds of facts. So um, the, now that we've covered support and custody, uh, but there are other things too. Um, in uh, a in a request for order, oftentimes a, a parent or a spouse is asking for an order controlling assets of the parties. For example, who's going to have the use of the home during the interim period of time between filing for the divorce and uh, the hearings that will occur and the later judgment or full settlement? Um, Not only the home, but you might want to have an order saying that um, mom gets to drive the Ford and dad gets to drive the Toyota. That kind of thing so that if they're angry with each other, um, mom doesn't go and take dad's Toyota and and there he is without any transportation. So you might want to have an order about exclusive use of the cars and the house and other things, perhaps the business. We have a statute that says that if a, if a, a party is in primary control of a business, that they would be the ones who get to make the decisions about running that business. Uh, during the time, this kind of a time. You know, when there's a lot of uncertainty about it uh, during the divorce. Mm -hmm. Um, Additionally, uh, some of the things you might think about when you're filing a request for order is, are you going to take oral testimony? If it's a child custody case, you might want to be testing by cross-examination the other parent about the, the things they're saying. And if you're going to do oral testimony, You uh, will want to make a request to the court and you want to identify your witnesses and exhibits, that kind of thing. Um, One, Before I uh, end the topic on this, you might also, even if you're pro-per, you might want to go to the court and ask for attorney's fees so you can hire an attorney and not have to do all this on your own and not make the grievous mistakes sometimes people make. And you can ask the court to order a certain amount to be paid to the attorney if if there's an attorney on the other side that could even be uh, paid uh, subject to um, that payment could be paid by the spouse subject to you getting an attorney that is a a check payable to the attorney you find so that the uh, other spouse doesn't think you're just going to go spend that money and run off with it and then come in and ask for more money for an attorney later but that could be done and it could be very useful. And if you're doing a request for attorney's fees, there are certain forms you need to file to, a family law 157, 158, and a 319, which uh, when you go through the forms, you'll start seeing the value of. Vince, I'm sure you've got some thoughts here.
0: Well, you know, it's difficult to um, respond to that. I... You know, assuming that it was child custody or child visitation or child support or spousal support, um, you know, the strategy for the RFO is always going to be a little bit different. Um, And sometimes, you know, um, bringing the RFOs uh, all at one time um, are uh, also a consideration. Dan, do you have a strategy that you've used over the years with respect to custody and visitation and support? Do you usually bring them all in one RFOs? Or is there sometimes that you might break them up?
1: There are times I might break them up. Um, A very common allegation that um, people make when you bring a custody RFO, the other spouse oftentimes says, oh, uh, she's just bringing this RFO for custody because she wants money. She just wants higher uh, child support. Now, it happens that our law, uh... is uh... concurrent with that kind of an allegation uh, lately uh... we've had a change in the law which basically uh, tells the court that, uh... because uh... when guideline support is set the more time a parent spends with the child the less that parent has to pay by way of support so if dad is is uh... twenty percent timeshare that is uh, typically, every other weekend, some time in the summer, different uh, alternating holidays, maybe a little, um, maybe a Wednesday um, time after school before dinner. That's like a twenty percent. And if Dad can increase his time above that, then Dad will actually have to pay less child support because the the guideline that is approved in California takes into consideration that parents who spend more time with kids need more money to. Have facilities for the kids and to feed the kids and all that kind of thing. So uh, these days, you know, parents very often try to increase their timeshare just so that they don't have to pay so much support, child support. And um, when when you bring that, and the other spa- the other spouse says he's just, she's just bringing this because she wants more money. That um, will not be such a strong argument if you didn't bring. A motion for child support at the same time you brought your child custody case. Now, I'll tell you frankly, in about 70% of the time, I'll bring both together, uh, all, all five or six factors child custody, visitation, attorney's fees, spouse support, and child support, and other uh, orders. I'll usually bring those all at the same time, in about 70% of the time, because of the practicalities of the expense of it, of doing two hearings, is much more expensive than doing one. But if we have a heavy child custody case, that's very sensitive, I might go for the custody first, and once there's an order giving my client custody, then later I might bring a second motion, a second RFO for child uh, support and spousal support, the financial issues, because then it's much cleaner we don't have those arguments on either RFO.
0: Right. Right. That's a very good yeah, analysis. I, I like your strategy.
1: Oh, thank you. It's it's always you always have to think about it each time you do a custody matter, how that's going to play in.
0: <clears throat> I find myself tailoring um, strategies for certain cases and certain parties. Do you also do that in your mind, Dave? Dan. Oh,
1: absolutely, absolutely. Each case is unique. While they do have some consistent themes, sometimes uh, they can change on a dime. Just on this, on some of the subtlest, you really have to custom do each one.
0: Okay, Dan. Here's our next question. I just received a summons for divorce. I am not surprised at all. I want to start working with an attorney. But at this time, I do not have enough money for a retainer fee. How do I go about responding to get custody over my children?
1: Well, um, two things, and this is the fees, possibility of fees, and also building a child custody matter. Um, Before anything with regard to custody, you need to be uh, cognizant and careful about building your timeshare history with the children. That is, um, spending more time with the children, caring for the children's needs, you being the primary parent. Now, in many cases, of course, that's already happened, and sometimes it's way too late for changing that much. But um, even in the short few months before you get up to the hearing, it's smart sometimes to be calendaring the time you're actually spending with the, the children. Just on a calendar where uh, the judge can see um, a month at a time, for example, and you could put in the actual hours the kids are with you and how many overnights they're with you. So it's visually apparent to the court right away where the children have been spending their time. And that that history of timeshare is really a big factor because the courts are, are – uh, Always thinking that um, where the children have been successfully, that's where the children ought to stay. Stability of the children has always been recognized as a very important factor in child custody, as every parent knows. You know, the children don't want to be um, dealing with uncertainties about things that are so important to them. So build that that history. Um, one of the things, of course, a parent can do in an, in an emergency situation in a child custody case that I've seen done successfully, and I've done successful in many occasions, is to bring an ex-party motion um, before the uh, child custody motion is brought. Now, the rules of court provide that the court is not supposed to be determining child custody on an ex-party basis. And when I say ex-party, I mean an emergency basis. Uh, A party can go in in California courts on giving even 24 hours notice in an emergency situation and asking the judge, sometimes even without informing the other spouse, asking the judge for emergency orders to be placed. Sometimes this can be done in child custody matters, and, and the court rules actually do allow it and provide certain things that have to be stated to the court if it is done on child custody, although the courts are loath again, to, to do it. But in cases, for example, um, if, the, if uh, one parent has uh, substance abuse problems and, um, or maybe a, a violence problem and you haven't done a DVTRO, or uh, one parent has abandoned a child or left in in an angry huff for weeks at a time or something, sometimes you can go into the court and ask the court to make just temporary provisions for how to handle things until the child custody hearing comes in five or six weeks from then. And my view has always been that despite how lay people think about it, that the the, – very first hearings in child custody are actually by far the most important. It, you'd think that the trial that you're going to do uh, six or nine months after the divorce is filed, you'd think that trial on child custody is going to be the biggest matter determining custody all the way through. But my experience has been otherwise. My experience is that the very first hearings get the court thinking along a certain channel. And once the court gets on that channel, sometimes it's impossible to change them. You know, so those very first glimpses the court has of the case, and those first impressions the court has, uh, while they can be changed by a thoughtful judge later on, on good, considered evidence at trial, um, and a um, conscientious judge will change them. Uh, nonetheless, those first impressions sometimes are just. Uh, um, the most important factors for child custody, so they have to be treated uh, very carefully. Uh, that's one mistake that a lot of people who are in, uh, who are pro-PERS make when they're going into child custody cases. They think, well, the first few things don't matter. Actually, the first few things on the child custody case may matter the most. Um, let's see, what else could I answer on that, Vince?
0: Did we talk about um we talked about filing the RFO for getting custody?
1: Yes, and, um, <clears throat> I think we covered that in the previous questions. And one thing on this uh, question number three about um, not having enough money for a retainer fee. I think I mentioned earlier, in the right case, you can go to court and ask for money if if uh, your other spouse has funds, you could ask for that spouse to pay a sum to hire a lawyer. And um, these days, if there's a disparity in income, access to funds is very important and the courts are supposed to be very sensitive about that. So oftentimes the court will order an an amount of attorney fees to be paid upon your hiring a lawyer. And and in custody, that's the time to do it.
0: Do you uh, have any comment about uh, limited scope or bundled services?
1: Well, I've got a lot of thoughts about that. Um, If you can't afford to hire a lawyer to handle the whole case, you can afford to uh, have limited scope or bundled services. What that means is doing a case piecemeal. Instead of hiring the lawyer to do the whole darn case and paying $10,000 or whatever you think it might run, that's that's not even an expensive case. you could just hire a lawyer to do that one hearing you could you could prepare the paperwork and just hire the lawyer to come to court and do that hearing and um, or you could be more expansive you could hire the lawyer to prepare the papers for the um, rfo hearing and all that attorney is going to do is prepare the papers and come to court and argue it and after that argument um, then he's done or she's done with the case, unless you hire him or her again for another aspect of it. Uh, sometimes uh, you could hire an attorney for just doing the trial. Uh, that might be a little difficult if you didn't do a good job in preparing for the trial, but uh, perhaps you've had a paralegal or someone helping you, and uh, and then you could hire the attorney, an experienced attorney, to do just that that piece of work at court, um, so, and that uh, is becoming more and more common. That kind of uh, limited scope
0: representation. Okay, Daniel. Moving to our next question. About two years ago, me and my wife filed for legal separation. Now I want to get a restraining order filed against my spouse, and I have, to, and I want to complete my divorce. How can I get my case reopened right away so I can protect myself and my children?
1: Well, it depends on what happened um, that left the case as it is. If the case was dismissed, uh, as uh, sometimes it is, uh, say that they got a reconciliation and they formally dismissed their case by filing a motion for dismissal. If that's the case, then, in my view, they would have to refile their case all over again. Um, Another way it could have happened is um, if it were a long time that the case sat dormant with the court, the court could have dismissed it on its own. Now, um, my experience is the courts don't do that until the, the case has been very old. I believe there's a discretionary dismissal statute at three years, and there's a mandatory dismissal statute, I think it's a CCP 581, at five years, unless there's a, a support order that is in place, um, that or, or if there's been a bifurcation of, of an issue, a bifurcation of status, could keep it alive beyond the five years. Um, in this case, it's only been two years, and my guess is the parties just filed the case. Uh, maybe they did a an RFO, maybe they didn't, maybe they just thought about it and it's been sitting there for a few years. And the court probably has let it sit there dormant. If that's the case, is and this is very common, if that is the case, then the party could, the party who wants to reactivate it, can go in and file a thing called a request for a trial setting, a request for a trial setting. And uh, in some courts, they have continuing status conferences every oh, four months or so, uh, so the, the trial setting um, memorandum is not done so often because people are, uh, the court is setting them at the uh, status conferences, but uh, that would be the way to reactivate the case is to file that trial setting notice. Um, or an alternative, of course, is that you could go in and file an RFO on some issue And if you did that, I think that would reactivate it as well, and uh, then you'd be back into the case, and the court would um, uh, be setting some monitoring on its status conferences. And meanwhile, of course, um, you might want to be doing some discovery on the case. You know, discovery is uh, procedures, are procedures about learning the information from the other side, and consists of things like interrogatories, written questions to the other side, that have to be answered under penalty perjury, or uh, depositions, or uh, document production requests. And those are very common and very useful, very helpful. Um, That kind of thing is outside of the court, and the court normally would not even know about that. But that's part of getting prepared for uh, going ahead with your case. Uh, Let's see. Oh, yes, and if you are having to, if you dismiss the case, then to refile it, you'd have to file your summons, your petition, uh, a cover sheet in uh, Los Angeles, I know, and um, in Orange County also, and a sheet uh, regarding related cases, and also within 30 days of filing your summons and petition, you are supposed to file a uh, declaration a service of declaration of disclosure. Uh, and accompanying that would be a a preliminary declaration of disclosure with an I and as we talked about earlier and a schedule of assets and debts. So I think that would cover how to reactivate it either under either option. Am I missing an very option
0: good. There, No. No, no. Very good. Let's move on because we're running out of time this evening. Let's oh, move okay. on to our next question. No, I'll try to be shorter. My husband my husband's mother Moved into our home a few months ago. I am unsure of her intentions. I don't know how long she is going to stay. Since she has been here, she has been physically abusing my children. I would say emotionally abusing them too. How can I protect my children? Can I get a stay away order, restraining order, or anything at all?
1: Well, the short answer is a DVTRO, as we talked about. Um earlier is, is probably the most obvious way to go, a domestic violence temporary restraining order. And the fact that um, mother-in-law has been living there with the children and with um, the, the uh, mother and the father uh, shows that she is in a qualifying relation, or that is the mother, sorry, that the, the uh, mother of the children is in a qualifying relation with the mother-in-law. Uh, To get a domestic violence temporary restraining order, you have to prove as a jurisdictional matter that is affecting the power of the court to act. You have to prove that you're in a qualifying relationship. And qualifying relationship can consist of such things as that you're uh, residing in the same home or have been residing in the same home, that you're married to each other, uh, that you've had a dating relationship, or you're related to each other in the second degree. Uh, Those are required... Um, matters for the court to grant a DVTRO. Now, you could get a, if you weren't uh, in a qualifying relationship, then you'd have to go with a civil harassment restraining order, uh, which is harder to get because uh, it requires um, clear and convincing evidence um, of the acts uh, of the need for it. So that's a little more difficult. That's why the qualifying relationship is required in a DVTRO. Now, um, a lot of courts can issue restraining orders, and in juvenile court, for example, they can issue restraining orders. And when you're talking about physically abusing children, um, DCFS, the Department of uh, Child and Family Services, might have stepped in. um, Let's hope not. But if they did, then they could issue a restraining order in that court. Um, And, of course, if you called the police on mom-in-law for physically abusing the children, and I wouldn't blame you for doing it. Uh, Physical abuse is a very serious matter of kids, and emotional too, but the physical particularly is uh, grievous. If you called the police or the CPS hotline, then uh, that would um, trigger possibly a uh, a criminal protective order and or possible involvement of of uh, DCFS and possibly the juvenile court. I think the CPS or the Child Protective Service hotline, which would trigger that, is I think it's for a child is the number that you dial to, to get them if I haven't uh, mangled that. <clears throat> so there are various avenues for restraining orders.
0: Okay, very good. Um, next question, I just started my divorce proceedings. I have my first hearing coming up. What can I expect to happen? Do I need representation? Depends on the case. Some
1: cases are very simple and can be done on your own. If a case is less than about $2,500 involved and it's less than a few years of marriage, you could do it on your own. And uh, it just requires that the two of you, um, in a summary dissolution proceeding, that you are able to uh, sign an agreement about how to handle the various issues. Um, but in general, um, attorneys are advisable in most divorce cases because of the complexity of the family law issues that come up. Now I don't know what um, this caller's first hearing would be. It could be an RFO, um, typically an RFO for support. Um, and. Uh, If if that happens, then they can expect to uh, have to file papers in response to that RFO nine court days before the hearing, nine court days before the hearing. That is, excluding weekends, excluding holidays, nine days when the court is open. You need to file your papers. Those papers would be your declarations and an I and E, as I talked about with your pay stubs, that kind of thing. Um, and then when you get to the hearing, uh, then the court would normally um, ask for time estimates of the hearing, and then when the court calls up your matter, uh, they expect you to tell the court what it is you need, what the grounds are. Um, the court normally has read the papers, so they may have some questions to ask you. Um, if you have an attorney, then of course the attorney would uh, normally do all the speaking for you, unless the judge has uh, some questions for you. Um, if uh, if the first hearing was, was a status conference, at a status-type conference, and there are various names for those, but at a status conference, the court is normally concerned about, are you ready for a full settlement conference and trial, and or trial? <clears throat> so that means, have you finished your discovery? Have you done the formal legal procedures that are necessary to learn about the facts of the other side's case. You know, such things as those interrogatories, document production, requests for admissions, depositions, that kind of thing. Um, if you haven't finished that, then you shouldn't be ready for trial. At the status conference, if you haven't finished th- that discovery, um, proving the various elements you need to prove your case then you need to tell the judge that what you need to do by way of discovery, and the court would normally put the case out to allow you to do that. Or if you need to file a jointer motion or have a psychologist appointed, a 730 evaluation, or any other type of expert, you need to let the court know that so you don't find yourself set for trial, and then you go to trial and you're not prepared to prove your case, which is a surefire way of losing the case. So... Um, Those are the normal things that you could expect. Now, do I need representation? The biggest question is the complexity of the case, the importance of the issues, and sometimes the financial size of the case. Um, Even just a case involving your house and your kids. In in the normal case like that, you need an attorney to deal with those kinds of issues. Um, Even a simple question about a house can deal with, Complications about 2640 credits. Do you get your down payment back um, or uh, more Marsden credits? Uh, was Were the house payments paid from community earnings? Those questions can be critical and financially very important.
0: Very good. All right, let's look at the next question. We have a few more moments here. Old. Um, I got a letter from my husband's attorney telling me he is looking to divorce me. The letter requests that I agree to a mediation. What is this? Is it in my best interest?
1: May I run with this one, Vince?
0: <clears throat> sure. This,
1: Yeah, uh, mediation can be great. Mediation can be one of the cheaper ways to resolve a complicated or simple divorce or legal separation. It can, uh, you could hire an attorney to do your mediation. You can hire um, a private judging to do your mediation. You can have uh, private people do your mediation. And sometimes that can be excellent. There are, however, some problems. And some of these are so big that I'm very jumpy about mediation. So it can go, it can be the best or the worst. And the problems with mediation are, in part, because of uh, things like the Foxgate decision out of the California Supreme Court that was handed down years ago. In that case, the court held <clears throat> that mediation uh, is confidential, and um, Things that happen in mediation have to stay in mediation, even if you don't want them to. Uh, Events that uh, persuaded you to decide to settle a case a certain way in mediation, if you later decide that that you were lied to or cheated or swindled or fooled in mediation, you may not be able to tell the later court what happened in mediation or why it was that you signed what is now an inadvisable foolish agreement because of the Foxgate case and because of evidence code sections uh, 1119 and 1121. So pursuant to this uh, line of cases, 1119 and 1121 now provide that there's a privilege of the effects that happen in mediation that cannot be brought up to a later court let's say you go into mediation as this happened in some cases and um you're there for hours and somebody uh, gangs up on you verbally and browbeats you into a settlement that you think was uh, in retrospect just plain foolish that you were coerced into it um and maybe you've lost a great deal because of your being coerced or embarrassed or humiliated or just ganged up on in mediation. And if that happens, you will not be able to tell the court later what happened. Um, there was a case where a, uh, an attorney allegedly committed malpractice, serious malpractice in a mediation, and when the client tried to sue the attorney for malpractice, the court prevented the evidence of that malpractice from being told because it occurred in mediation. So many evils could happen in mediation that would not be able to be corrected later. Now, one more thing that I think we all have to be very careful, even in a good mediation, my advice is don't sign a marital settlement agreement, disposing of property, etc., settling all things, before you file the, the petition for dissolution or separation there's a case called marriage of Evans and in that case the court said that even though normally the normal rule is that if you have a, a mediation agreement that has been arrived at uh, and and a divorce or a separation is filed and then you ask the divorce court uh, to enforce or to register or to file the mediation agreement that's one exception to evidence code 1119 so that the court can allow the filing of that to happen however if you have done the mediation agreement before the divorce case or the separation case was filed you cannot insist on your declarations of disclosure so um picture a, a sophisticated, um, snaky businessman who doesn't want to reveal to his wife the money he's hidden away over the years and the various things he's done with the business and their money. And, uh, and he knows that if he filed a divorce, he's going to have to reveal all that under penalty perjury um, or be subject to very serious sanctions. And so what he does is convinces her to do a mediation nobody files for the petition for divorce or separation they complete the mediation the mediation settlement is agreed to and no and still no divorce has been filed then when the divorce is filed long after that and it's um, filed the the settlement agreement is filed the courts have held that you cannot go back and and insist on having those Declarations of disclosure done because basically you did the mediation without it. So that's one one problem that I uh, really warn my clients about uh, to be on guard about that Evans situation. Vincey, do you have any Very feelings good. about mediation? <clears throat>
0: you know, I'm in I'm generally in favor of mediation, but I do understand. You know, like anything else, there are pluses and minuses with respect to mediation. But I do think that it's a it's a good way for um, parties to save a lot of money in terms of the expense, the cost, um, you know, the attorney's fees of having uh, to do go through a court and you the know, a litigation process. The
1: sure, exactly uh, with a... The- With a a celebrity, for example, the privacy may be a paramount issue, and they may want to do a private judging situation for mediation to deal with their large property issues and yet still have privacy. And mediation does have that. Even in large cases, it can be very powerful.
0: Very good. Running out of time, Uh, next week let's talk a little bit more about Angelina and brad and their uh pending divorce and see what develops over the next week and we can talk about that i know some people will be interested i'm at least i'm always interested in finding out what's happening in celebrity divorces
1: okay and we'll talk a little bit
0: more more about property um next week and the division of property i wanted to touch on that tonight but maybe we can take some time out from our questions and uh talk about that uh, tomorrow, excuse me, next week, next Wednesday at 7 p.m. Dan, I want to thank you for joining us, and we'll talk to you next week on the radio.
1: Thank you, Vince. It's been a pleasure.